We'll get it after class. It's five o'clock, and I got the thing going. Yeah, yeah let's so, go. Let's see here. Oh, now Burke is a big. I know. Well, Burke today is uh, selling uh, pumpkins, so I don't know if he's going to show up. He's supposed to end at five. I don't know if he's going to come or not. And Jim and Linda are in Mexico, so this is probably going to be the whole class right now. Is a couple oh. people. That's all right. But uh, let's see here. We got. Uh, I'm going to read you Psalm 119, verse 17. It says. Uh, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live. Keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me. But your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. I'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much to see the bridges back here safe and sound from a nice uh, season up north. And uh, we're uh, certainly in prayer for Paul. Haven't heard from him this week. And uh, I'm assuming that's good news that he's happy and healthy at home. And so we want to lift him up and also want to lift up our brother Don and uh, his wife who uh, had an accident this week and uh, we want to pray that uh, she's okay in her heart because of what happened and uh, that there would be comfort in that home and Lord we certainly pray for all the other people around the uh, country and even overseas that are attending with us that uh, if they have any problems with their their lives whether it's physical or emotional or financial problems, whatever is burdening their hearts, that uh, you would lift them up and take good care of them and uh, just uh, bless them and let them know that you're an ever-present help in their time of need. And Lord, we thank you for all the good blessings you've given us. We commit this uh, class to you. We ask that you just bless it and help us to handle your word carefully and uh, to treat it properly. Lord, we ask this that you will be glorified, and we ask it in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Hi, ladies. How are you? Oh, goodness gracious. Ah, okay, see, I we're just getting started right on time. The clock is not working. I thought we still had 15 minutes, and everybody's saying, well, it's 5 o'clock. So we turned on the, the thing just in time, I think, today. But uh, all right, we're in Romans chapter 8, and we're in verse 23. And uh, let's see here, 8 and 23. And like I said, Burke, I don't know if he's going to be here or not. He uh, ends at the pumpkin patch at 5 o'clock, and maybe he'll come. But the last time he worked at the pumpkin patch, he almost fell asleep in here. He was just done. And so uh, uh, I don't know if he's going to do that again. But it is cooler today, so probably not as stressful as it was. But uh, Are you saying he was punked? He was punked. Very good. That was that was a good one. That was uh, pumped. Yeah, he was pumped. Yeah, I can't at no M and K together. Um, and uh, like I said, Jim and Linda are down in Mexico, and we want to keep them in prayer just for safe travels and no sickness and all that kind of stuff. They're at a wedding down there, so yeah, wedding. And I guess one of the family had a desire to do one of those. What do you call it when you get married somewhere else? Um, there's a destination term. Wedding. Destination wedding. I think that's what was going on. But oh, an incentive. 
Yeah. Oh man. Wow. I, my destination wedding was at the end of our dock 33 years ago, and it worked. So I guess it doesn't matter where you do it as long as it keeps going. That's right. As long as you get married. Well, that's right. And stay that's, married. And stay married. That's right. Okay. Let's see. We're in uh, Romans 8:23, and uh, let's see. It says not only that. I'm going to go ahead and go back to 18 and just start a whole paragraph. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because of the create, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until together till now. And then verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Wow. Pray that'll be soon. Let's see here. Um, 8.23, the thought not only that, he says not only that, begins the verse. The thought not only that is tying our personal groaning in with the whole creation of the previous verse. Every single thing in creation and those who have been redeemed understand the glory ahead. And we're jointly waiting for that wondrous day. Paul notes that he is speaking about we who also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Okay? First fruits is a term which looks back to the Old Testament feasts of the Lord in Leviticus 23, which I've started typing. We're 10 weeks in advance, so uh, about eight weeks we'll be doing it. I've typed the Sabbath, and I've typed the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, and which are actually Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover are separate feasts, but they're joined together. In the New Testament, they call it the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover, and they just join it together. But they are separate feasts, and they have a separate fulfillment uh, to be looked forward to, so we'll get there. But anyway, first fruits is um, one of the feasts of the Lord in Leviticus 23, and there are other passages where it is detailed in the Old Testament, and they'll all be drawn together eventually. But there in Leviticus 23, 9 through 13, the details of the feast are given. So let me read them to you, and then that way we'll be ready for them in, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, like say maybe eight more weeks we'll get into the feast of the Lord, and this one will probably be about 10 or 11 weeks away. But um, Leviticus 23, starting in verse 9, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord um, to be accepted on your behalf, and the day after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine one-fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and in all your dwellings. So that's the Feast of first fruits, and then there are also first fruits which are presented at the uh, Feast of Weeks. It's a little complicated. We'll get to that eventually, but um, the, you've got um, the first uh, feast to be mentioned in Leviticus 23 is the Sabbath, and like I said, then the Passover, which is, starts in verse 4, 
and then on uh, verse, um, actually verse 5 for the Passover, and then verse 6 starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it talks about for a couple verses. But does anybody, before I get into analysis of Romans 8, does anybody know what the Feast of First Fruits pictures? Called Bikurim in Hebrew. It's not a, there's not a set day given in the Old Testament, but there is a set process. And uh, based on whatever day the Feast of First Fruits is, 50 days later, you've got the Feast of Weeks. What's that? Oh, okay. So uh, 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 what happened 50 days before the day of Pentecost? Resurrection. resurrection. There you go. So the Feast of First Fruits, we can look back and we can know that it's pointing to the resurrection of Christ. But there's more involved in the term <laughs> first fruits than that. Like I say, we'll get to all of that eventually in Leviticus 23. But as long as you understand it's the resurrection, and um, uh, the there in Leviticus 23, we've got the, the details, which I just read. And as with all feasts of the Lord, they were fulfilled in the coming of Christ during his first advent. A lot of people say that's not true. They say the fall feasts are going to be fulfilled in a second advent. That is not true. They are part of the law of Moses. Christ fulfilled the law of Moses. If they're not fulfilled, then he didn't fulfill the law, and he's not the Messiah. Trust me on this. They are all fulfilled. Um, there may be future fulfillments of them that are coming. People want to speculate about those kind of things. I'm not getting into that in any way, shape, or form. Christ fulfilled each and every one of the uh, feasts of the Lord. So, anyway, um, this particular feast was picturing, as he noted, his resurrection. And Paul specifically ties those two together in 1 Corinthians 15. And most people know the uh, 1 Corinthians passages, and it's speaking about the rapture uh, later in 1 Corinthians 15. But in verse 23, I think it is, yes, it says, um, I'm going to go back to 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits. That's verse 20 of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he died. The term fallen asleep means uh, to die. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, here it is again, Christ the first fruits, meaning the first, okay, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So the first fruits, without getting into a long, detailed analysis of it, they were taking when the crops were just starting to become uh, ripe. They would go and they would take the very first sheaf of that and they'd present it to the Lord. Okay, hello. It was kind of like um, saying that I am dedicating this to you in anticipation of a full harvest. You know, hoping that nothing bad will happen, that everything in the field will come to fruition as it should it should all um uh, uh everything should become uh uh fully mature and then uh, i can't talk what i i can't talk with you got to knock that off there because i can't concentrate while you're talking um anyway um uh, you've got the first fruits and you're saying to the lord i want this to be an example of what we anticipate for the rest of the crop and christ is the first fruits and that's saying that in him the entire crop will come to fruition. All right, that's just a little short uh, example of it, but uh, the Old Testament symbolism of Israel all points to something that Christ has done or is doing in us at this time. Okay, anyway, um, uh, where was I now? Okay, so um, the Bible uses nature quite often to make spiritual applications. 
wind, water, rocks, agricultural themes, among so many other things, are used in a manner which tell spiritual truths of God's work in Christ, in Israel, in the church, and the world at large. In other words, if you take water, you know, you've got water uh, is a picture of the Bible. It's a picture of, uh, you know, the water of life. I am the water of life. Anyone who comes to me will never thirst. You've got the stone. Uh, Christ is the stone. He is our rock. He is the, you know, immovable. And, um, and so all of these Old Testament pictures, anytime you see something in the Old Testament, a mountain, for example, would be a government. Not always, but uh, when you uh, talk about the mountain of the Lord, it's the government position where the Lord is. So you've got all of this symbolism, and it's developed all the way through the Bible. And if it is going to be used in a picture, it will always be consistent. It will always be. So anyway. Um, Charlie, can I yes. ask you a question? These people, I think it's in John, that's um, Matthew uh, 27, 53, the, the people after his resurrection, Christ's resurrection, are they part of the first fruits? Okay, that was what I was getting at, is that there is, um, uh, uh, the term first fruit is also used of, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but it ties in with the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Weeks, uh, I, I don't want to get into, I don't want to give it all away before we do the sermon, because it's just so close, but there are two groups of people that Paul calls the first fruits. He calls one of them the first fruits of Achaia, and one of them the first fruits of another place, and it's escaping me right now. But, believe it or not, one is a Jew and one is a Gentile. So that should give you a clue as to what God is doing. And uh, But that's the Feast of Weeks. Um, the first fruits itself, though, bickering, that the what I just read you from Leviticus 9, uh, 23, 9 through whatever it was, 13, that is specifically speaking only of Christ. Okay. Then there are designated two other uh, uh, in Paul's writings, they are the first fruits of. And so when he did that, that actually ties back into the Feast of Weeks and the first fruits in that instance. So um, I don't want to get any deeper than that right now, like I said, because if I do, then it'll kind of get a little skewed. And when I get to the sermon, then it's going to be like, oh, you know what I'm saying. So, um, uh, but that is correct, but only Christ is the first fruits, and then only two other groups are specifically named as it. So I wouldn't call anybody else that was resurrected at that time first fruits, um, only because the Bible doesn't. They're, you know, you've got the Jewish people, the early Jews were obviously very um, uh, uh, a part of the early gathering of the church, but I wouldn't, unless the Bible specifically denotes them as first fruits, I wouldn't say that. And like I said, you've got uh, one group of uh, people from Achaia and one group of people from somewhere else. Those are specifically designated first fruits, and that is in order to fulfill the Old Testament typology. So anyway, we'll get to that. But um, other than that, I wouldn't call anybody else like the uh, saints that were resurrected on the day of Christ. I wouldn't call them that because the Bible doesn't. They may be, you know, in, in, in the picture but the Bible doesn't specifically say it. So I don't want to go beyond what it says in the Word. First fruits is designated Christ, and then those two groups of people, and only that. So anyway, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, where did I leave off here? Oh, spiritual applications, agricultural themes, and uh, the first fruits of the harvest picture Christ's resurrection. And therefore, the rest of the harvest looks forward to the great day when we will likewise see the adoption of the redemption of our body, as he says in that verse right there, the adoption of the redemption of our body. The first fruits is merely looking forward to 
um, or I shouldn't say it's merely looking forward to it. First fruits is looking back to the resurrection of Christ, but that sheaf or Christ resurrecting from the dead is then looking forward to our glorification as well. Our resurrection, our standing in the presence of God, completely free from sin, new body, everything. All of that agricultural theme is looking forward to something that God is doing in redemptive history. So good stuff there. Um, and as I said now, the Feast of Weeks is pointing to, um, uh, you know, this concept of us being resurrected, okay? But specifically, the Feast of Weeks is, as you noted, it's 50 days after the Feast of first fruits, and so it's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. What people will do, and I'm not talking about the Feast of Weeks, but more the, uh, the Fall Feast, they'll say, well, see, this is coming in the future, but it doesn't mean that there was a past fulfillment of a feast. We can say that Pentecost happened 50 days after Christ's resurrection, feast fulfilled. But every single time that a person comes to Christ, what happens? They're sealed with the Spirit. So just because there is an initial um, occurrence of something, it doesn't mean that there are not later occurrences of it. And, but we want to make sure that we understand that when something is fulfilled in Christ, it's because of the original occurrence. That's true with the Feast of uh, Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah. That's true with the Day of Yom Kippur, which we just got done with in the, uh, the uh, three um, sermons on Yom Kippur. And it's also true with Sukkot. There is an initial fulfillment of these things in Christ. Anything that happens later is tied into that initial fulfillment. And I want to make that understood because anybody that says that the fall feasts are not fulfilled is not properly handling the Bible. They are not properly handling the law of Moses, and they're not properly handling Christ's fulfillment of the law of Moses. They are fulfilled, okay? Very important to remember that. Um, and I will say this right now. I'm going to say it again during the sermon on uh, Yom Teruah, the uh, Day of Trumpets, or it, nowadays it's called Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, because the year has changed to the different calendar than it was in the Bible. And so now they call it the head of the year in Israel. I want to say this right now, that that is not a picture of the rapture. The day of trumpets or Yom Teruah or, uh, you know, whatever name you want to call it, Rosh Hashanah, it is not a picture of the rapture. Okay. That has been passed around so many times for so long, and it is incorrect. It is not a picture of the rapture. So if you hear that, you can click off of that video. You can ignore it, and you'll find out about that. It'll be about... Uh, 14 weeks from now, maybe 13 weeks, and we'll get into that. This is not a picture of the rapture, okay? Um, uh, let's see here. So uh, there are several opinions here about Paul's writing. He says, we. Who are we? And also the exact application of the term first fruits of the Spirit. Let me read you the verse again so you know what I'm talking about. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Okay, so he, who is we? Who is that speaking about? The All right. What's that? The believer. It is the believer, but specifically, he's he's making a point about who he is, and so um, the first fruits of the spirit. Now, some people say that it is Jewish believers who received the spirit at Pentecost. Okay, but Paul wasn't among them at that time, right? He wasn't one of the Jewish believers at Pentecost, so that view is unlikely. Okay. Another view says that this is refer referring to the Spirit as a pledge of the good things to come in Christ. This can be assumed because the first fruits during Israel's history were just that. They were an offering in hopes of an abundant harvest once the entire field had ripened. As I said, you took your first sheep that was ripe and you would take it down to Jerusalem and you'd say, 
this is my first sheaf. I am in hopes that the Lord will bless the entire field and it will come to its fullness. All right, so that's that. This also doesn't seem likely, though, based on Paul's wording here, as well as Christ being the actual first fruits. Christ is the first fruits, and so it doesn't seem to match. What is more likely is that this is speaking in general terms of the early Christians during the apostolic age. Okay? In other words, as I said, Paul wrote, this person is the first fruits of Achaia. Well, they're Gentiles. So it's not speaking specifically of the Jews, and it's not speaking of, uh, what did I just say, the, the hopes of the entire harvest, meaning we, everybody in the church for the entire church age. Rather, it's speaking of the early Christians during the apostolic age. This was still the time of signs occurring for the establishment and building up of the church until the Bible was complete. After that, the signs were no longer necessary because the Holy Spirit has completed that, that portion of his redemptive work, a work which testifies to the truth of the message of Jesus Christ. As I said, people still believe, if you're in this class here or online and you're listening, you need to say, I still believe in miracles occurring today. I still believe in gifts of the, uh, the apostolic gifts, which are referred to in the Bible. That's fine. I'm not going to argue with that point. I disagree. All right. I do not believe that we need miracles. We don't need signs. We have the word which is sealed. The Bible testifies to the things which occurred in order to establish the church age. I do not believe in the supernatural coming from God at this dispensation. I do not. Okay. It happened during the apostolic age for a set reason, as we saw in the book of Acts. What more do we need? That's my question for people that still believe that we have miracles and that Benny Hinn actually heals people up on stage and all that. What more do we need than this? All right. This is where we derive our faith from. All right. Faith is believing something that you don't see. If you have sight, then you don't need faith. Okay. It's, it's actually, let's go there really quickly and uh, read exactly what faith is. Hang on a sec here. Where is that? Hebrews 11. It says here, now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. So if we have miracles happening in these churches, all these Pentecostal and charismatic churches around the world, and if we actually have the apostolic gifts still in the church today, then they have evidence. They don't need faith. And I just don't believe, I believe it's contrary to the word of God to say that God is still working out miracles. However, having said that, God does work the miraculous, but it's in a way that we must have faith in it, okay? Somebody gets in a car accident and they walk out of there and they're unhurt. We have to believe that they were protected, whether it was by angels unseen or whether it was by God's divine hand or whatever. We can say that that is a miracle that happens in the world today. I'm not completely dismissive of God working in humanity, but he does not do it in a way which is necessarily for our edification within the church. Okay, I don't believe in that. I don't believe that man, Benny Hinn has ever healed anybody. He's walked through many, many hospitals, and he didn't bring any of them out of their hospital beds, which is, and he also, uh, you know, has had his own heart attacks, and he didn't heal himself, and so there you go, whatever. I just, I, I'm, I'm opposed to that type of thinking. I want to stick with the word. I want to stick with the fact that the apostolic gifts were given for the, the formation of the church, for the writing of the Bible, and once the Bible was complete, this is the Spirit's word to us. We can take it by faith or we can reject it. And other than that, anything else is going to be sight for us. I don't believe it. If you believe differently, don't argue. 
I fully appreciate your position. I know a million very good friends of mine that believe that we still have uh, miracles, that we still have you know apostolic gifts. I just disagree. Okay, so you disagree with me, I'll disagree with you, and we'll leave it at that. And if you want to go teach your own class, that'll be fine. I'll watch it and I'll disagree when you get to that portion of it. Okay, and it's just not my thing. I believe that the word is all that we need. Okay, so having said that. Um, uh, he's, I, I believe, or uh, this was the time of signs occurring for the establishment and building up of the church until the Bible was complete. After that time, the signs were no longer necessary because the Holy Spirit has completed that portion of his redemptive work. And as I said, it is a message which testifies to the truth of the message of Christ. Okay, that's all we need. We have the Bible written, testifying to Christ and all of his work, his fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, everything that he has promised, therefore, such as in the book of Revelation. If we have uh, assurance that what was fulfilled in Christ is sound, then everything that follows after that, which is coming yet future, will be sound. So, how are you? I have been very worried about you. I sent you an email, and is everything okay? Yes, we moved our house. I knew you were moving, and I didn't want to bother you, but it's been a while, and I thought, I wonder if you got hurt. I you when I said, oh, every time I said, oh, I'll go next week. Oh, I'll go next week. Well, it's okay. I just was, you know, I thought maybe, like, the house fell in on you or something, and maybe we needed to go and dig you out or something. So I'm so glad you're here and you're safe, because... Finally, I couldn't resist, and I just sent an email, and I said, you know, if everything is all right, just let me know. Yeah. Oh, when did you go? Oh, a week or so ago. Oh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, anyway, um, we're in Romans 8.23 right now. Okay, so um, the Romans would have been included in this period, this apostolic age, okay, obviously, because the epistle was written to them, is a portion of the Bible which we now possess, and which testifies to the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The roles are now understood, and so the time of the first fruits of the Spirit have moved into the ripening of the fields for the time of the great harvest to come. Okay, does everybody understand that Christ was the first fruits? We have the first fruits of the early apostolic age. That's when he says, um, let me read it one more time. Uh, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So what you said a minute ago is, and I was actually not thinking as clear as I should have, because what you said is correct, but it would be inclusive of all of the people during the apostolic age. He says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. It is the gift of God until the establishment of the uh, Bible, as it's, or the completion of the Bible. After that, I don't believe that that term applies to us, because we are in the field. The sheaths are brought in, they're presented to the Lord, and after that, the field is left to ripen until a certain time when it is harvested. That is the end of the age. Actually, it's happening every day when people die, they're going off to be with the Lord, right? So they are part of what's going on in redemptive history, but they are waiting for what? All the people that have gone before us are waiting for what? They're waiting for the rapture. It says the dead in Christ will rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4, right? And then after that, we who are alive, um, I'm not, not going to misquote it. Let me just read it to you. But all right, hang on one second here. 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, I'm just so distracted today. My brain is just all over the place. It was the same way last week, too. So um, let's see here. Um, okay, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
There it is. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That is the completion of the church age, okay? That is the complete harvest of the field which God has planted. Christ was the first fruits. He was the first sheaf. And then Paul specifically designates two groups of people as first fruits. But he says we, um, verse 23, one more time, we... Um, uh, we who also have the first fruits of the Spirit, speaking of the people during the apostolic age before the completion of the Bible. Okay, go ahead. In all of your readings, having come up with this with the number, uh, the first Christians were Jewish. Right. The percentage of the people in Jerusalem who remained Jewish really who small percentage became Christians. Christians. Yeah, it, the, all the Bible says is that you know three thousand the first day, and then many were added after that. You know, and then um, uh, it, it, the message did grow within Israel, and for a while there, they were safe and they were secure. They they spread out from Jerusalem where there was persecution, but um, uh, there were enough of them. There is no percentage that I know of anywhere in, in documented history. But there were enough of them where they established their own synagogues. And we know this because there's one that still has the name of Jesus in the tiles there in Israel. I mentioned it on a prophecy update a while ago. And so there were people that were actually worshiping the Messiah in Israel. And so there had to be a sufficient number to build a synagogue, to put the tiles in, you know what I'm saying, and to not be persecuted by the rest of the Jews. It's, you know, it, oh, those are crazy messianics over there, just like they do today, right? So. We can't say half believed and half didn't. Oh, certainly not. They were a small portion. They were a small portion of the oh, Jews that okay. believed. It's always been that way in Israel. So compared to the whole, uh, it would be a small portion. So anyway, um, and the same is true with the end times. I mean, we have at the beginning of the tribulation period, we've got 144,000 that will be sealed. How many are going to be raptured out before that? I do not know. Okay, but we know 144,000 are going to be sealed. There are 6 million Jews, uh, maybe more than that right now in Israel, plus you've got them in America, but two-thirds of them in Israel are going to die. We know that, all right? And Christ is telling them, get out when you see these signs coming to their fulfillment, which means that even in the tribulation period, I don't think the numbers are going to be really great for those that are actually saved that will put their trust in Christ. I just don't think they're going to be that great of a number. But... You know, that's in the Lord's hand, and uh, uh, it doesn't mean that all of them that perish are unbelievers, because certainly believers are going to perish as well. But um, I would I would just guess that it is not going to be the greatest number until the end. As Paul says in Romans 9, I think it's 9, he says, um, and all Israel will be saved. Okay, but that is at a point when Christ returns and all the remaining Jews, Israel as a nation, will be saved. But I, I, I just don't have great hopes that, like the rest of the world, all they are, you know, Israel is just a microcosm of the world at large, okay? How many Christians are there in comparison to the total number of people? Well, that's kind of the same in Israel. The total number of believers in Israel is very small in relation to the whole. So you look at the world, look at Israel, and they're just a microcosm of what's going on. So, I, But there is no set number that I know of. Okay, so um, let's see here. Um, life application, and we'll go on. It is always good to return to the fountain, meaning the basics, the, the Bible, God's Word, and think through our position in redemptive history in comparison to the earlier stages which are recorded for us. Okay, the Bible is the wellspring of our faith in Christ, and it testifies to what has been accomplished in the establishment of the church 
and the doctrine of our faith. Is it sufficient for faith and practice or not? That's my question. Is this book sufficient for faith and practice? Okay, I don't know if anybody in here disagrees with that. If you do, that's fine. I believe that this book is sufficient for faith and practice. Therefore, we don't need apostolic gifts. I further believe that the apostolic gifts ended at the end of the apostolic age, which was when John said amen at the, book of, at the end of the book of Revelation. Okay, once he did that, the apostolic age ended, and we went into a time where there, the signs and the wonders and all of those things are no longer necessary. Um, take that as you will. That's fine. I just I think that the Bible is sufficient for our faith and practice, okay? The answer is yes for Charlie Garrett. It is. Cling to the words of Scripture as you wait the coming of the Lord Jesus and redemption of our bodies, okay? I just don't feel the need for there to be signs in the world. Now, people will say, well, that's fine. You have great faith, and so you don't need a sign. Um, but uh, I, I have had low spots in my life where I've needed a sign, and the Lord has given one. That's fine. That's an individual thing that has happened in an individual's life, whether it was a dream or whether it was a vision or anything like that. <laughs> it did nothing to add to Scripture, okay? When somebody says, thus says the Lord, or the Lord told me something, all right, that is something that becomes a problem when you're talking about scripture all right something that's personal in nature the lord moves me in my heart to go and preach at all 50 capitals of the world i believe that the lord did that i believe that he inspired me to do that and so i did it okay that was the calling that i believe that i was given same thing with going to college and all of the other things that i did in order to be in the ministry and each one of you the same thing the lord has impressed certain things upon your heart but there are times where we attribute to the Lord things that really aren't of the Lord, okay? And you see that a lot. You see it a lot if you ever go to a charismatic church. They will actually claim that the Lord spoke to them. They will actually claim that the Lord directed them. And I don't believe that. I don't believe that any way, shape, or form. I believe that if we feel moved by the Spirit, that we are in tune with the Lord, then it is of the Spirit. But people will attribute things to the Spirit that are actually not of the Spirit. So anyway, I don't want to get too deep into that, but as far as is the word of God, what we can rely on as coming from God, scriptural, and for our life and our doctrine and our practice, we have the Bible and nothing else. Okay, that's that's where I stand on that particular issue. Okay, 824. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Okay. Obvious, very obvious statement that he made. This is the final four of this particular subsection. Okay, notice the logical progression of Paul's thoughts as they come from the tip of his pen. Okay, we are children of God, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified. That's what he said. And then he said, For the present sufferings are inconsequential to the glory which shall be revealed in us. And then he said, For the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And then he said, for the creation was involuntarily subjected to the futility, but the creation itself will be delivered from this state into the same liberty as God's children. And then he says, for again, we know that even the creation is agonizing with labor pains together until now, just as we who have the first fruits of the spirit groan 
as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. And then he says one more four in this verse. For we were saved in this hope, but seeing isn't hope. It is realization. If we see something, it is not hope any longer. It is actuated in our lives, okay? So he's going through this process of four, 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 and he comes to this final four. Verse 16 spoke of our suffering, which will eventually be replaced with our glorification, okay? We're suffering, we will be glorified. Since that verse, he is built upon the thought to demonstrate what is intuitively known by all people, that this is a world which is not in an ideal state. We talked about that one or two weeks ago. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that there are problems in this world. I'm not going to say who. doesn't matter. Somebody emailed me, and they have somebody in their family that wants to get married to somebody else, okay? And this person is not a Christian, and she is rebelling against um, Christianity. doesn't want to convert, and it's going to be a problem because the uh, man is a Christian and the female isn't. And they, her reason for not becoming a Christian is that I can't believe in a God that would send my parents to hell, which implies to me that her parents are dead, okay? Or they're uh, still alive, but they're not believers, and they have no hope of converting, and so um, without Christ, they're going to hell. One way or another, it doesn't matter, but that is her reason. And so I gave my uh, very short analysis of what I would say to this person. First, God doesn't willingly send anybody to hell. We fell. We rebelled against him. It is a natural result of that, okay? But each step of the, the process, which I told them, including that, is that um, uh, includes the thought that we are in a fallen state, okay? This person, whether she wants to believe in the God of the Bible or not, will never say that the world is a perfect place. Her parents are dead, or they're going to die, but I'm just assuming that they're dead, right? Is that ideal? Absolutely not. When people die, that's not an ideal world. When, you know, you run over a, a squirrel on the road, if you're like me, you feel terrible for the next six months, right? It's because you, it's not the regular workings of things. Now, the funny thing is, you could get out your twenty-two rifle and go hunting and hunt a squirrel and have it for soup and it wouldn't bother you. But you run over a squirrel and it bothers you. Does everybody understand? Do you feel the same way? Okay. So we know that this is a fallen world. It's just the way that things happen. And so um, uh, this is what Paul is showing us, is this, this progress of what's going on. We have the suffering. We will be glorified. And like I said, since that's first, he's built upon that to demonstrate what all of us know intuitively. It's a fallen world. Okay, it is something that is easily supported by observing the physical creation, as I just said to you. Okay, we're saved in the hope of being glorified, and that hasn't happened yet. So we are still in hope, being preserved for the glory to come. Just as the creation fell with the fall of man, so will creation be restored with the restoration of man. That's what Paul is saying to us. He said that creation fell. And our man fell and creation fell with it. All these bad things that are happening are because of our disobedience to God. But when man is restored to where he should be, creation will be restored as well. Okay? It is yet future. And that is our hope. If it were to happen to either, then it wouldn't happen to the... Oh, I'm sorry. If it were to happen to either, then it wouldn't happen to the other. Therefore, hope would be realized in sight. If creation were redeemed then we would see it and there would be no hope yet future in this regard. 
See what I'm saying? If creation is redeemed and we're not, well, then everything is fine, but we're still in a bad state or vice versa. Okay. As he says, why does one still hope for one one sees? What one sees? The answer is they don't. They live in that reality. Whatever the reality is that we're living in, a fallen creation, that's what we see. If we were in a glorified state, then we wouldn't be hoping for a glorified state. He's making these obvious statements here for us to think this issue through. And that takes us back to what the for of this verse is for. It is explaining the thought of the previous verse. We also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Paul speaking of the people in the apostolic age, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Okay? So he knows that they have the Spirit. They're eagerly awaiting what is promised. Okay? The Spirit is our guarantee of the reality to come, not the final reality itself. Thus, the signs of the apostles which validated the indwelling of the Spirit were not an end in and of themselves. See what I'm saying? Paul is there, and he's performing miracles. Peter performed miracles, right? It's not an end in and of itself. They are still groaning for the redemption of their bodies. So the apostolic signs can't be anything other than a witness to the people that we have a guarantee of something coming. Now that that's recorded in the Bible, we have the witness that something is coming. We have exactly what they have. Exactly. If we put faith in the signs that the apostles did, which are recorded in the Bible. Okay? I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying, but that is what Paul is logically telling us. Okay? This is why those signs were given at the establishment of the church. To give an anchor for the hope which is yet to come. Those people were waiting for the redemption. They were sealed with the Spirit. They had the signs of the Spirit, all proving that the Spirit was working and was going to fulfill exactly what Paul is saying, the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of creation. We have exactly the same thing. It's simply in a recorded form. We don't need to have the signs of the apostles today because we have faith. Well, I just took you to Hebrews 11, and I read you the definition of faith. If we had sight, then we wouldn't have faith, and we'd still have the hope, but we'd be looking at people doing the things of the apostles. It doesn't make any difference. We have exactly what they had. We have it in recorded form. If you trust, if you trust the word of God, right, and you say that this is my marching orders, and the marching orders say that those signs happened, then that's a part of our relationship with God, all right? It's that simple. We do not need those signs in order to uh, uh, increase our faith in this current time awaiting our redemption, all right? Anyway, I, I, I hope that you understand what I'm trying to tell you is that the word is sufficient. That's the whole point of what I'm giving you is that the word is sufficient. If we have open, you know, somebody posted on one of the uh, blogs today. I'll give you an example so that you can understand this. Somebody posted a, on one of the blogs today and they put a picture of a female preacher up there and they said, is it okay for... Uh, females to be preachers, okay? And one lady went on there and she said, this is something I've always struggled with. And another person gave their, I think, and all the way down the line, all of these things down there. And I went and I commented on each one. And the one that said, uh, I really struggle with this, I said, what do you need to struggle for? It specifically says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, the answer to that question. If you believe the word of God, then there's no reason to struggle, and then somebody came back and said, right on, that's that's exactly right. And uh, then she made a, a, another comment on that basic thing. And I said, when people have a problem with that, 
all I tell them is I didn't write this book, but I believe this book to be true. I believe this book to be true. Now, if I believe this book to be true, and it says that women are not to teach or have authority over a man, right, and I stick by that, well, then why wouldn't I have the same faith in the apostolic signs which are recorded in the Bible, right? Jesus came out of the grave. Does everybody believe that? Okay, you all believe that, all right? That's part of the Word of God. Why, where do you get your belief in Jesus coming out of the grave from? From the Bible. It's the only source of that. It's the only source of that. I put my trust in the fact that Jesus came out of the grave, and it's recorded here. Why do I need apostolic gifts today? Why do I need tongues? Why do I need any of the things that were given to the apostles for the building up of the early church when I have it recorded right here that it occurred? There's no need for it. And in fact, it would cause confusion in today's church. And it does cause confusion because people make up tongues, which aren't tongues at all, and taking that entire section completely out of context anyway, because if you know what tongues are, they're always a known language. Always. The word translated as tongues simply means language. Okay? It's a shame that somebody years and years ago in one of the Bible translations said tongues. It's all that's done is completely confused the church ever since. All we need to know is that it's languages. I speak in tongues every single Sunday when I give the uh, Lord's Supper, right? And what do I do after I do that? I translate it. Because it says, if you speak in a tongue, you must translate it. And then no more than, I think he says, two or three or three or four people. I'm, I'm not brushed up on that right now. But anyway, there's a certain number of people that can speak in tongues in a church during a, a service, and that is it. Okay? People say, well, I speak in tongues you know, by the influence of the Holy Spirit. Right? And they don't translate. What does it say in the Bible? If you speak in tongues, you must translate. Therefore, it can't be of the Holy Spirit. You're wrong. Okay? Yeah, go ahead. Is that you must translate or somebody must? There must be a translator. It, it must be translated. Absolutely. It doesn't matter who does it, but... Doesn't it uh, that it should be it's somebody else that... Is, well, it doesn't matter. It just says that it, there, it must be translated, okay? I mean, the reason I say that is because you can tell me, you say whatever you said. That's right. no way of knowing whether... That's well, that's true. But, and that's why I say that else. it's not an apostolic gift right. that we need today anyway. Okay, the directions on tongues are very specific. They pertain to the apostolic age, but the premise is that if you continue to speak in tongues today, you are to follow the precepts of, what is it, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. As long as it's translated, that's all he asks for. No more than, well, I think it's three or four. It might be two or three, but we'll go with three or four just for the sake of, of uh, discussion. Okay, no more than three or four may speak in a tongue. Okay, and you go into a church and there's 35 people in the church all sitting there going, blah, 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 right? Is that of the Spirit? It cannot be. The Spirit cannot be behind that because it's already written this book if we assume that this book is true. If this book is true, then everything that happens in a church which is supposedly Spirit-guided must be in accord with this book or it is not Spirit-guided. Everybody got that? Okay, same thing with all of the other apostolic gifts that we talk about. Whatever they are, we don't need them because we have the recorded word. It is as sure as the fact that Christ came out of the grave and we've put our trust in that. So anyway, that's my logic on that. Once again, I'm not here to argue with people. I don't go into a, a charismatic church and tell them you're all wrong. I don't bother with that. I just simply tell them what the Bible says. And you would not believe how often I will have somebody post something like that on Facebook and they're doing this nonsense in the church and I'll make a comment that that's not of the spirit because the Bible says, and you get attacked vehemently. 
because they don't want to hear what the Word of God says. They want to go and sit in a church and make a lot of noises and look like they're super religious. When they're not, they're not doing in accord with the Word. And all that matters when it comes down to it is this recorded Word, because this is Spirit-inspired. And if it's not Spirit-inspired, then we shouldn't be in this Bible class anyway. We should be out on the beach having a barbecue or something. All right. If this is not the word of God, we are wasting our time. So there you go. Anyway, um, read that last chapter one or paragraph one more time. And this takes us back to the four of this verse. It is explaining the thought of the previous verse. We also have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The spirit is our guarantee of the reality to come, not the final reality itself. Okay. Thus, the signs of the apostles, which validated the indwelling of the Spirit, were not an end in and of themselves. They were given as a demonstration of this hope. This is why those signs were given at the establishment of the church. I know I've read this. I'm just reminding you to give an anchor for the hope yet to come. And this is why, despite the flagrant abuses of charismatic churches worldwide, these signs are not necessary now. The Bible is published the doctrine is established, and Jesus is revealed. Those signs are no longer necessary because we have the surety of God's word, which fully explains the work of the Messiah. We don't need anything else, okay? If God chooses to give us a sign such as healing, this is his prerogative in any age. I do not diminish that people are healed by God ever, okay? I've never done that. I do not believe in faith healers. I believe in faith healing. That's why we pray for people that are sick. Okay. When we're Paul, have we been praying for him for the past five months? Absolutely. Because we believe in faith healing, but not one of us, at least in this church has gone over to Paul's house and said, I command you to be healed in Jesus name, because that's not realistic. Okay. As a matter of fact, it's harmful. I can't, I've said this before when Tom and I are in the projects and somebody comes along with us, that's into that type of theology and they proclaim over somebody that's sick, I heal you in Jesus' name, and we go back the next week and they're just as sick? What a bad testimony. What a terrible testimony. All right? So we, I believe in faith healers. I do not believe in faith, vice versa. I believe in faith healing, not in faith healers. Okay? If God chooses to give us that sign, it is his prerogative. He did it prior to the coming of Christ, and when he chooses to do it now, it will occur but it is not a necessary part of our life in Christ. The record which testifies to his power and authority has been made. It is sufficient for our faith and practice. Okay, little life application, then next verse. What is your hope? If you have hold of what you wish for, then you don't have hope of it. If you have what you wish for, right? I wish for a 10-speed bike, that's my hope. Well, if I've got a 10-speed bike in my hand, then I have the reality of it. I'm not hoping for it anymore. At the present time, the work of the Spirit is a guarantee of what we hope for, not the final reality of the promises to come. The Spirit has breathed out the Word of God for our edification. In it, we are told that we are sealed with Him when we believe. If the Spirit wrote the book, then the sealing must be true if the book is true. Is this your hope? If so, then your hope will be realized some glorious day when the sons of God are revealed. Okay? What does it say? I tell you every uh, Sunday, you know, what is it that's required for salvation? If you believe in the Lord Jesus and uh, if you call on the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
And then Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that when you believe, based on what Paul just said in Romans 10, 9 and 10, when you believe, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's all we need. If we believe the word of God, that this is what saves us, then we must believe that the Spirit has sealed us. We don't need anything else. We do not need a demonstration of the Spirit. I think I've said this before, and I may not have, <laughs> that I uh, was looking for a college to attend. When I uh, was looking to be ordained, I needed to get the, uh, the uh, degree out of the way. And so I started looking at colleges, and there were colleges that mandated that if you were a Spirit-filled Christian, you had to prove it by speaking in tongues. If you didn't speak in tongues, you were not a spirit-filled Christian. Completely contrary to the Word of God. Completely. All right? There's nothing in the Bible that ever says that. In fact, it's comp it's the opposite of the truth. All it says is that you believe, you receive the Spirit. It is our guarantee. There is no baptism of the Spirit. is a one-time event. That's it. When you call on the Spirit and you are sealed with the Spirit, that is your baptism of the Spirit. Okay, there is no second baptism. There is no any of these things that people make up out of their heads. You believe you are sealed with the Spirit. That is your Spirit baptism. It is a one time for all time thing. Being filled with the Spirit is completely different. That is a repeatable thing. Baptism of the Spirit is once. Uh, being filled with the Spirit is repeatable. And it is based on you acting, not the Spirit filling you actively. You do something and the Spirit passively fills you. Now, I know I've said that a million times to you, but I'll give you an example, is that I actively married my wife, right? We are married and we're not getting any more married. I call on Jesus, I am not getting any more of the Spirit. I have him in his fullness the moment that I believe in Jesus Christ, 100% fullness. But I'm married to my wife and I ignore her, I disregard her, I don't give her any doting affection, she has nothing of me, right? But as I yield myself to her, then she gets more of me. And as she yields herself to me, I get more of her. That is the filling of the Spirit, okay? It is passive in the Bible. It is a passive thing, not an active thing. You have to do something in order for the Spirit to passively fill you. I can give you uh, three or four things that you need to do. One is to read your Bible. Two is to go to church. Three is to fellowship with God, speaking to Him, praying to Him, praising him and uh, singing into your heart, in your heart to him. Those are the things that bring the filling of the spirit. Okay. When you actively do those things, he will passively fill you. It is not going to happen any other way. According to the Bible, it is a passive thing. It is a repeatable thing and it is up to you for it to happen. It is not sitting in a church and saying, come Holy Spirit. It will never happen. Okay. You do something and he will fill you. It's just like, um, let me think of a good example of this. Um, um, try to think of something. Well, just think of a cup, right? When you have a cup, the cup is empty and you fill it up. The cup is passively filled. I'm actively filling it, but the cup is passively filled. It's just being filled up. All right. That's a good example right there. But the marriage example is the best one, in my opinion, because for how many years I didn't give my wife any affection. I mean, we were just married and, you know, I mean, but once I met Christ, Wow, she got all of my affection. She got all of my devotion. Our life, our married life became so, so much better, right? We actually did something. But we were never less married or never more married. We were completely as married from the first day as we are right now. But we got more of each other. There you go. That's what the filling of the Spirit is. So anyway, um, 
Let's see here. Um, life application. I've asked that. Um, the Spirit has breathed out the Word of God. Okay, I've said that. Okay, 825. <coughs> you okay? Okay, I've got a frog in my throat, too. I don't, is it in here, or is it the air conditioner, or is it... Oh, it's something you've got. Okay. Every time I come in here, it must be the air conditioner. It, it just get, I get a frog every single time. Um, let's see here. Um, 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I have a hope that Christ is going to resurrect my body. I'm waiting with eager eagerness, right? Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times a day I say to something, somebody, I can't wait for Christ to come. And that's a real hope then. It's a real grounded hope in my life that someday Christ is going to come and maybe it'll be today because my back hurts or I got to go and mow a lawn I don't want to mow or something like that. Whatever. It doesn't matter what the reason is, but I am in eager anticipation for it. If Christ has come, I've got nothing to hope for in regards to that. I have other things to hope for. Okay. But marks the contrast with the preceding verse. For if we, if we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Okay, and then he goes in and he says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Instead of sight, which is the realization of our hope, we, even 2,000 years later, 2,000 years people have been waiting, okay? Paul wrote these words and we are still waiting. Hope for what we do not see. All of us. This has been going on, and all of the people before us have gone. They've all passed away. They died in hope. And we are still hoping, and maybe we're going to die in hope as well. Christ will come someday. That is a guarantee. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a book of hope and promise for those who wait patiently on their God to fulfill his word and to execute his plan. The New Testament shows us the fullness of this plan, and it helps clarify what the Old Testament only partially revealed. <clears throat> in the New, there are numerous passages about the hope which has been presented. As an inspiration to the longing soul, let's review just a few of them. Okay, Galatians 5 verse 5 says, the hope of righteousness by faith. Colossians 1 verse 5 says, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Colossians 1 27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. All of these things are tied together. Ephesians 1.18, the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, the hope of your salvation. 1 Timothy 1.1, the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. I can't think of anything better than that. I mean, heaven is just a side benefit, right? Our real hope is seeing Jesus. Everything else that he offers us is just grace on top of it. But seeing Jesus is our true hope. All right, Titus 1, 2, the hope of eternal life. And Titus 2, 13, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's just a few of them out of the Bible. There are hope uh, verses spread throughout the New Testament. But if you take those and you just say, you the righteousness, the uh, hope laid up in heaven, the hope of glory, the glory of his inheritance, the hope of your salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, the hope of eternal life, and the hope of the glorious appearing of Christ. They're all tied together. They are all centered on one man who came and did all of this for us. Okay, because we have the guarantee, which is the sealing of the Spirit, these things have been promised. They are our hope. And because of the magnitude of the glory of what is coming, we have the ability to eagerly wait 
for them with perseverance. Why should we feel any sense of hopelessness at all? The rich and famous may have it good in this life, but where is the hope? Unless they have something more, more to look forward to, their life is but a fading glory at best. Okay, I was, uh, what day is it today? Today is Thursday. Yesterday. Every uh, Wednesday, I call it shopping day because when I'm driving up to the mall, anybody that's throwing any metal away, it's out by the road and I put it in the back of my truck. And if you notice the back of my truck today, I've got a, what is it, a washing machine and I got all kinds of stuff that people put on there. And then on Saturday, I go down uh, to Scrap All and I put it in the Scrap All because it's right by the projects. And then if we have any money left, we have lunch with it at IHOP. Okay. So. As I'm going down shopping, uh, doing my shopping yesterday on the side of the road, there's a guy, I see him all the time, really nice black guy. I, we're always waving to each other, but I've never met him, okay? He doesn't know who I am. All, you just pass somebody enough and you just get in the habit of um, uh, waving to him. And so yesterday, I waved to him as I always do, and then I kind of pulled over on the road and I started putting some metal in the back of my truck. And he came all the way back down, never having met me before, just waving hi. And he uh, came up to me and he said, um, listen, I got some metal down at the place I take care of down the road here. It's Mandalay Point Road. If you uh, uh, have time, come by and pick it up. It'll all be out by the road before the garbage people came. And I said, I got a lot of work to do at the mall, but if I can, I'll come down and I'll pick it up. All right. And... Um, he, uh, he took off, but he came all the way back. It was quite a ways because I'm loading the stuff up. He came back just to tell me that. This is just a nice guy, right? He gets back on his bike and he goes down and he does his job. I go home, which is past Mandalay Point Road, and I unload all the junk that's on the truck. And I saw the washing machine. I'm like, oh boy, I'm going to go get that. So I get back in the car after I've unloaded everything. And I go up there and I load all the stuff. There's a couple of really big ceiling fans, which I took apart today and the uh, you know, because if you take them apart, you get more money for the, the different parts. This is brass. This is steel. This, you know, you, they give you different. If you throw it all in in one, they just give you the steel price and it's like a penny a pound or something. It's nothing. Anyway, so um, he uh, happened to be there when I was loading it up. And he says, OK, you got everything. I'm so happy for it. And he started to walk away. And I said, hey, Frank, wait. I said, come over here. I want to ask you something. And he said, yeah, what? I said, Frank. You know the Lord Jesus? And he said, oh, I love Jesus. And he puts his hand up and I said, well, then we'll walk together in glory. Now imagine that. This is a guy that's he rides all the way from somewhere. He's on a bike and he's wearing really gross clothes. He probably gets paid six bucks an hour for what he's doing at this guy's house. He has a hope that transcends the people in Hollywood that are living in multi-million dollar mansions. It doesn't matter what happens in this life. I understand that there are bad things and that we get sick and it's terrible to be in that situation. It doesn't matter. It is temporary. You know, when somebody dies, we miss them. It breaks our heart. When things bad happen, it's always detrimental to our our day, right? Or if we, you know, get our, uh, we, we get up and we break our favorite mug, we get angry. None of that matters. None of it matters. This is transitory. This is temporary. This is uh, earthly and it's all going to perish. When we're raptured out of here, I hate to tell you, it says the world's going to be destroyed by fire. Whatever you like in your house right now, don't plan on seeing it again because it's probably not going to be there when we return with Christ, right? This is a temporary world. But that reminded me yesterday when I stopped and I saw Frank and I asked him that question, his face lit up like, like a torch. He says, I love Jesus. 
That is hope. That is hope. Wonderful stuff. Anyway, let's go on. Um, on the other hand, I just said about the fading glory of the Hollywood people, no matter what our station, because we have that which is eternal in our sight, we have more riches than those people could ever imagine. All of it is stored up for us because of the work of another, capital A, another. How can we not marvel at the grace and glory which proceeds from God? Now, before I give you my life application on this verse, I want to tell you that the guy's house that um, Famiglio, you know who I'm talking about, the end of um, Mandalay Point Road. Mandalay Point Road, when I was a kid, that was our bus stop. And we'd walk six houses down there and we'd go to Mandalay Point Road. And there were one, two, three, four, five houses on Mandalay Point Road, maybe six. I, the end one, I think so, we had six houses. It's, it's a point that goes out into the bay. All right. And um, uh, right. It used to be a little uh, paved road and we'd take our chalk and we, you know, Mark and we play hopscotch every day before school. Right. So we had our hopscotch and we play there. And you had all these old people that had been living on the key since, you know, the 40s or 50s. And eventually Mr. Famiglio moved in. He's at the, he bought the end of Mandalay Point Road. He's a rich guy. Right. And then he started buying all of the houses. So now I think he owns all of Mandalay Point Road. He owns the entire thing. It's his little private thing. Okay. Now think, this guy has got this very valuable piece of property. Very valuable. It's out on the key. It's a point going out into the bay. He's got this big house that overlooks the bay and everything. And he's got all of this money. Stephen, uh, what's the guy that was the actor? Stephen Seagal. And that's, yes, is he the one that, um, the uh, karate guy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Steven Seagal also is a blues player. I don't know if you know that, but he comes sometimes to Famiglio's house and he plays there. And all of the high-end people from Sarasota are out there, right? And there are hundreds of people. There's cars all the way up and down Midnight Pass Road. They have people that, uh, you know, park the cars for you. And it is just packed, right? He's got these famous people at his house. And my thought about that is that you have Frank there taking care of his place, probably not getting paid anything. The last guy that used to work, there was a Mexican that didn't speak a word of English, and he was so poor. He was so poor. He walked every single day miles to get down from the bridge down to Mandalay Point Road. And anytime I saw him, I'd turn around and pick him up or I'd pick him up if I was going in that direction. He could not have been paid eight bucks an hour. It's not possible, right? But think of the difference a Frank or that Mexican guy having a eternal glory and Famiglio out there with all of this earthly wealth and who knows if he's saved or not. You know, he would never talk to a guy like me anyway, so I'd never know, but we're just assuming he isn't. Look at the contrast. I'm doing this guy's work, but I have something much better waiting. Anyway, hate to beat that to death, but just think about your life. What's going wrong? However little money you have or whatever troubles you have or whatever uh, sickness you have, it is temporary. Just keep your eyes on the prize. Okay, life application. When attending a funeral, mark well the difference between a person who was truly saved and everyone knows it and a person who actually had no hope at all. Someday, unless the Lord comes for us first, you will be laid in a box as well. What message will be spoken over you on that day? All right? That's, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been to funerals and the person that is saved is in the box and everybody is there. They're sad that they've lost their father or their best friend or their pastor. I cried when Pastor Ross died down the road at that church. He was such a nice man. I remember just looking at that coffin and I just, I broke down. But at the same time, every single person that stood up and spoke about him said, man, 
This guy is in glory with his Lord. This is what he had anticipated his whole life, and now it's realized, right? And then you go to a, a funeral where they have no assurance of salvation. What a difference. Someday you're going to be in the same same box if uh, the Lord doesn't come first. Okay, 826. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Let me read it again. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Newsflash. Okay, this is a newsflash for all of you. This verse has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. Okay, if you've ever been in a charismatic church, they'll use verses like this and say, these are the groanings of the Spirit in me. This verse, this is not a verse which can be used to defend the unintelligible emanations which proceed forth during charismatic gatherings. It has nothing to do with that. Paul uses the term likewise to open this verse. It is the Greek word hosaltos and means in like manner. In like manner of what? Paul has just said that the creation groans with the birth pangs and we likewise groan, eagerly waiting for our body's redemption. This is the comparison that he is using. It is not an excuse to stand in church and draw unnecessary attention to oneself by making up a prayer language. This is actually an important theological issue, and to diminish it, as has been done over the past hundred years or so, is to devaluate the worth of sound biblical interpretation. And so we continue. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. We are mortal, and we are weak. Some of us are weak in a physical strength. Some of us are weak in health. Some are weak in knowledge. Some are weak in elocution. If you know what that means, it's where you stutter a lot. Listen to me on a sermon on Sunday, and you know I'm not a great orator by any stretch of the imagination. The weakness of our prayer life is what Paul is speaking of here. We are weak in our prayer life, okay? We have will often have real needs and real desires that we simply cannot put into words because of our thoughts, our ability to reason the issue out, or the interference of our emotions, which causes us to be able to un- we are unable to accurately express what is on our heart. When this happens, Paul says, we do not know what we ought to pray for. This is our weakness, and yet it is not a problem to God. Instead, the Spirit himself, in quotes, because that's what he's saying in this verse, the Spirit himself, who is the third member of the triune God, makes intercession for us. Paul says that it is he who searches our hearts and minds and that he uses a word, it's a very long one, it's hyper which is found nowhere else in scripture. The spirit takes our place and makes the plea to God for us. This intercession has nothing to do with audible emanations flowing off our tongues. Instead, it is speaking of our internal groanings, which cannot be uttered because we don't know how to utter them. These are sorted out, and they're brought to God in knowing and understanding. In other words, what we simply cannot tell God, the Spirit does it for us. All right, have you ever tried to pray for something and you just don't know what to tell the Lord? He already knows. He is searching you out, and he is going into you, and he is taking what you can't 
properly say to the Lord because you're overwrought or you're, you're whatever. And he takes that and he says, God, this is the Holy Spirit who is God, but he takes it to the Godhead and he says, this is what this person needs because he can't express it properly. He you know, derives it out of us. That is what this is speaking of. The Spirit is the one who aids us just as an advocate in a court of law would. We have no idea how to defend ourselves in a legal situation because we simply don't have the knowledge or training to do so. In such a case, we wouldn't walk up to the judge and start flapping off unintelligible syllables. Rather, the advocate would speak on our behalf, carefully stating to the judge the things that we were not able to properly elucidate. Okay, That is what is going on in this verse. It has zero to do with what charismatics teach. There is no groanings coming out of your mouth saying, I'm going to make these noises, and God is going to hear those noises, and he's going to respond to my prayers. Absolutely not. And as I said, you take the example of going up to a judge and saying, try it sometime. If you ever get arrested and you need to get uh, uh, talk to the judge about the uh, ticket you got, you're not going to go up and start going, it's going to send you to the insane asylum. That's, but that's what people do in churches all the time. They start making these crazy noises and they stand in the pulpit. Just type in preacher speaking in tongues on YouTube and you won't believe the nonsense they say. And they're saying that this is, God is responding to my prayer language right now. He's making as much a fool of himself as anybody would that would go up to a judge and do exactly that. And all of a sudden the judge is supposed to respond and say, oh, well, I understand what you're saying. Here, let me wave your fine and give you $1,000 too. It's not going to happen, okay? And that's the intent and meaning of what Paul is stating here. Because we cannot put into words the things that we want to say, but the Spirit can, and because the Spirit knows the mind of God, the two are brought into a point of harmony. This is done silently and with the decorum of the Holy Spirit tending to his troubled child not with outlandish fantasies of the mind and of the tongue, okay? Life application. If you want to make noises for the Lord, do them in a way which builds up and glorifies God with shouts of praise and honor, and the Lord is well pleased. You want to know how to give praises to the Lord properly because you're just not really good at doing that? Read this, the book of Psalms, right back to him, because this is what he gave through the hands of people in order to praise him, right? The oldest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 90, was written by Moses. We have psalms written by Solomon. We have them written by Asaph and the sons of Korah. And tons of psalms written by David, right? These people were praising God, and they understood how to do it properly and that God would be pleased with it. And obviously, he was pleased with it because he put them in this book. If you don't know what to say to the Lord when you are downcast, go to the 42nd Psalm and read it to him. All right. If you don't know how to praise God where you want to elevate from a low position to a high position, start with Psalm 120 and read the next 14 Psalms, which are Psalms of Ascents, and you will be elevated one step at a time. They're very short. You can read them all in just a couple minutes. They're very short, and you can just elevate right up to the throne of God itself. Use the Psalms. In, if you're angry at somebody, there are lots of psalms that you can read that will help you direct your anger properly. They're called psalms of imprecation. That means calling down curses, all right? You want to know how to call down a curse on somebody? The psalms will tell you how to do it, right? You know, David, 
he's the, he's the imprecator extraordinaire, isn't he? That's right. I, and people the Psalms, and he really is mad at his enemies. You betcha. You break their teeth in their mouth, though, God. I mean, he just he lays it. And you know what? The Lord put it in His Word. If you are angry at the Lord's enemies, call down imprecations. There's nothing wrong with that. At the same time, pray for your enemies. We're asked to do that as well. Pray for your enemies. But it, there is nothing wrong with you saying, that person has abused me, and Lord, I don't know how to respond to that. Read one of the Psalms of Imprecation. If you don't know what they are, just type in Psalms of Imprecation on the uh, Internet, and somebody has certainly listed them all. Okay, and they'll probably have a little stars by the really good ones. I don't know, but they, they, they will help you to process your anger properly instead of improperly. And like I said, at the same time, you can pray for the person. Lord, I want to pray for that person that did me wrong. But at the same time, I do not want him to get away with it. Read the Psalms. Okay, that will help you because some people think, oh, I just I, I need to be good to everybody. And I blah, blah, I can't say a bit. Let the Bible direct your theology. It is recorded there for a reason, okay? So, uh, let's see here. Um, verse 827, let me read this to you. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Who is it that searches hearts and minds? Anybody? You just said the Spirit, right? Well, let's, let's see. In Jeremiah 17, verse 10, let me take you there. Instead of just telling you what it says, I'm just going to take you there. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. 20, 17, 10. I, the Lord, Jehovah, I, Jehovah, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So the Lord, Jehovah, does, right? And then it says uh, in Revelation 2, verse 23, Guess who reads and searches the hearts and minds? Anybody got a guess? What's that? The Lord, Jesus. Okay, it says in Revelation 2, verse 23, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. So we have Paul saying it's the Spirit, we have the Old Testament saying it's the Lord, and we have the New Testament saying it's the Lord Jesus, right? Okay, Elsewhere throughout the Bible, such as in the Psalms, this is spoken of as being in the providence of God. In other words, something that is at the providence of God alone is something that is accomplished by all of the above that I just read you. All are God. Each performs this function in a way which is appropriate to the situation and dispensation. Paul in this verse which is tied to the Spirit in the previous verse is speaking of us in our prayer life in relation to the Spirit, he says that it is he who searches the hearts. At the same time, he knows what the mind of the Spirit is. The Spirit works in accord with his knowledge and becomes the one who makes intercession, as he says, for the saints according to the will of God. This is the Spirit's role. But again, it is not a role which is unique to the Spirit. Coming up in just a few more verses, Romans 8.34 says that it is Christ who also makes intercession for us. And we can also find that in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Let me read you there. Hebrews 7, and verse 25. Therefore he, Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right? 
So once again, we have these implicit proofs of the Trinity all through the Bible, okay? How people like the Jehovah's Witnesses get away with saying that Jesus is a created being, he's not God, and the Holy Spirit is just an active force, I don't know. I don't know how they can come to such a twisted theology when it's absolutely clear that the Lord is the one that does it, that Jesus is the one that does it, that the Spirit is the one that does it, and at the same time in the Old Testament, it says that God alone searches the hearts and minds. It must mean that either this is not the Word of God, and it's a confused, crazy book, or all three are, in fact, God, okay? And they are. There's no doubt about it. So, therefore, as the Spirit of God is searching us, he takes this information that we can't properly make clear in our prayers, and he brings it before the throne of God. The right hand of God is the position of power and authority. At this glorious place, Christ intercedes for us. The marvel of the Trinity is that there is one God who is eternal and without division, and yet he within himself performs certain roles, and so we call them persons. Like I say, the term persons, uh, that came all the way back from the time of Augustine. He said three persons in one essence, okay? But he admitted, and people ever since then have still struggled with the term persons, because when you think of a person, you think of an individual, right? And so you have three different things that are separate. They're not. It's one essence, and there's three persons within one essence. So for the lack of any better term, we use the term persons. But it's in the sense of them being one, but having different roles within the Godhead. Okay, so don't think of three separate. It's like I showed you before, time. Time is one thing. You've got future, you've got present, and you've got past. It's one thing, but each is a different aspect of time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is just the same. They're three persons in one essence. They are one, they are the same, and yet they are individually performing different roles. Okay, so um, it's something that's hard to grasp theologians bandy concepts of God about, but in the end, one must look at a few facts that the Bible teaches. So I'm going to read you some of the facts. I need to, I keep looking at that clock, and I'm, oh, it's 7, 621 already. My goodness. See, the clock's broken, and so I keep looking, and I'm saying I got 45 minutes when I've got only eight minutes, so I'm going to finish this, and we'll be done. Okay, here we go. A few things that the Bible teaches. The Bible proclaims that the Father is God. Anybody disagree with that? Okay, nobody. All right, two, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. Three, the Bible proclaims that the Holy Spirit is God. Four, the Bible shows that all three members of the Godhead are eternal. No beginning, no end, okay? Five, time is created and we are in time. Six, our concepts of God must be considered based on God's eternality not how we interact with him in time. I spoke about this last week. And seven, if we are wrong about the nature of the Trinity, it doesn't change who God is. God is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It doesn't change whether we're right or wrong or not. Okay, last week I said that in God is impassionate, and somebody had a problem with that. He said, God has emotions, and he sent me a link saying, see, God is love. And I said that last week, God is love. Is love an emotion? Yes right? God is merciful. God is gracious. When I said God is impassionate, the word impassionate means unchanging in his passion. God is love. He doesn't love in the sense of I'm loving you now and I'm not loving you, or I'm loving you more than I was yesterday, right? God does not change, okay? So when I say that God is impassionate, God has emotion. 
it does not change. There is no change in God. If God's love changes, it's not the God of the Bible. He's outside of time. If God's love changes, that means that there is time going on with that change. Never going to happen. Okay? So when I say something, if you don't understand the word I'm using, go look it up. Impassionate means unchanging in emotion. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have emotions. It means that he is unchanging in his emotions. Okay? Important to understand that. Why? Okay, so I've given you all of these things about God. Why is it important? Because the Bible proclaims these things to us. All of the seven things that I just read you, it proclaims them. In our limited knowledge of God, we come up with our own misguided thoughts on these matters, such as whether Christ is God or not. Regardless of whether we can conceive of Jesus as God and eternal in his being, the Bible says he is. So either we can accept that as biblical doctrine, or we can reject it and come up with a different conclusion, which is not biblical, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses have done. When we deny that he is God and that he is eternal, we must then deny the evident teaching of the Bible. Thus, we now proclaim what is known as heresy. Okay, the Bible proclaims this. It is a, a, a salvific matter, meaning it's related to salvation. And if we proclaim that it's not true, then we are a heretic. Okay, the importance of these matters is that we that they can keep others from salvation if this is what they are taught and if this is what they believe. All of those people in the Jehovah's Witnesses that came there not believing that Jesus is God and say, I call on Jesus as Lord are not saved because they have called on the wrong Jesus. It's a false gospel, according to Galatians chapter one. It's another Jesus. We cannot do that. All right. Now. Understanding these intercessory roles a bit more, the Spirit and Christ and all of this going on that we've seen, it would be good to note that on a human level, we are also given this honor, albeit in a limited way. We see the distinction mentioned in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. It says, therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. He's telling Timothy and all of us to pray, to intercede, all right? We also have an intercessory role, bringing these things before God in order to transmit our desires and hopes before him. When we are limited in doing so because of our lack of intercessory skill, isn't it comforting to know that God searches us out and does it for us? We know that we need to pray for Paul, but we don't know what to say exactly. Or we don't know what his stat status is right now because we haven't heard from him. They, that's the first thing they asked when they walked in the door. Have you heard from Paul? I said, I haven't heard from him in a couple days. Okay? But we can still pray for him, and God will search out that prayer. He will do the intercessory work that we are unable to do. Right? That's why we pray. God has got it all figured out. In our groanings, he is already there taking care of the problem. All right? So... Um, it's comforting to know that he does it for us, and it is great stuff from our creator. So, life application, and we are done. Let us first accept the premises of the Bible at face value, and then work within those parameters to develop our doctrine. If we don't do this, then our thinking about God, his nature, his activity in our lives becomes skewed. Better we don't understand and accept than to deny and then attempt to contemplate why our denial is right and acceptable, okay? Know that God doesn't change. I, the Lord your God, do not change. No change in God, okay? So, I 
want to assume that God changes in his emotions. Why is God angry at me? Why did he get angry at me today? And what do we do? We develop our theology into that premise. Instead of saying, God doesn't change and something bad happened to me, maybe God isn't angry at me at all. Do you see that? If you understand the principles of the Bible first and then apply them to your theology instead of taking your emotions and applying them into the Bible, you will always do better. God doesn't change. Bad things happen to me. It can't be that God got angry at me. All right? I'm on the good side of him. I'm in Christ. He is in love with me. It will never change. It will never increase or decrease. And I've done the right thing through Christ. So it's obvious that God is not mad at me right now. Okay. Does anybody know what Bill O'Reilly said this week? He says, I'm angry at God, right? He's 32. I'm going to say it on the prophecy update, I think. Anyway, he's, uh, he's uh, got sued $32 million, right? And he's, why did this happen to me? Why did I lose my job? And I'm angry at God. He does not understand the nature of God. You know what? Who volunteered to go out and be on Fox News, right? Who took the chance of saying, this is what I believe ideologically, and the people on the other side of the aisle hate that, and they're going to attack me? Whose fault is that? He could have just stayed home and, you know, dug ditches. He took the chance, right? Why would he be angry at God for something that happens to him in something he purposely put himself into? right? I came into the church and I said, I want to preach. Well, I have to put up with everything that goes along with preaching, good and bad. And I can tell you there's a great deal of good, a ton of good, and there's some bad. And you have to put up with it. I can't say to God, well, I'm mad at God because something bad happened in the church today. I'm the one that put myself in this position, right? Same thing with everything that we do in life. Look to God as a good God that wants the best for us. And when something bad happens, don't blame him for it. Just say, God, I understand you're teaching me something and I don't understand right now, but I know you're going to reveal it to me. That's what we need to do. You're shaking your head because you went through it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We've got a cancer survivor here, right? That must have been like being punched in the stomach when you were told you had that, didn't it? Before that, a couple months before that, my husband left me. That's right. I, I forgot that. And then I got cancer. And then you got cancer. She, she had one blow after another and your good. faith didn't diminish one bit. My hair standing up all over my body. When I think of somebody that went through a, a, a short time of Job's life right there, and she never flinched in her faith. That's what we need to do. Not be angry at God and tell the whole world, I'm angry at God. What an embarrassment. What kind of faith do you have? You say you're a strong Catholic and you're saying that? That's insane. Okay, anyway, let's pray and head on home here. Lord God, it is so good to see the bridges here. We're so thankful that they're back here safely, and we thank you that uh, we have a, a winter ahead with them, if it's your will that that uh, continues all the way through. And uh, we thank you that uh, Sandy does have a good testimony and that she was uh, faithful to you even in the darkest moments of her life when other people may have just simply walked away from the faith or, or blamed you and said, I'm not going to church anymore or whatever. What a faithful witness that is. And that reminds me of Nick out in California, in bed all day long, every day, and he's the most uplifting guy you could know. He's not blaming you for what's going on. He's grateful to you for the position you've placed him in. And people all over this country are thankful for him because of what he can do by blessing others with his fine words and his uplifting uh, comments to them. And we certainly thank you that our sister Nicole is safe after several weeks of being gone. We're a little worried about her, but we're thankful that she's safe. Lord, it's so good to be here in your presence. It is so wonderful 
to know that you are here with us and you are a good God and that you have our best in mind. We thank you for that. And we just uh, thank you for this wonderful word you've given us. We just, we just can't praise you enough. You are worthy of just infinite praise. So as we're going home today or whether we're uh, at home watching and we're getting ready to do something else, help each one of us to remember to just keep on praising you. And we love you and we do praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, uh, all right, let me turn, turn this baby off here and uh, or back. Let's see here. We got uh, community break. There we go. And that'll be back in one second. Okay, everybody have a wonderful week. We love you. You take good care of yourselves, okay? We'll see you later. Did I read the memories? Oh, no. Yes. Um, I have it at home. If you send me an email, somebody, does anybody have Paul's phone number in their, their phone? No? Okay. I, if you send me an email and remind me, I will get it for you. I don't have it written here, but I... Okay, good. All right. I will forget. I'll get home and I won't remember that. This is another one. Um,